Hey, guess what? It's the 4th of July, and it's episode 18 of Ego Jive on July 4th, 2012. I'm your host, Kim Atchison, and this week we're going to try some new stuff for you. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about patriotism, actually, and then we're going to get into a new segment that we call our shout-out. And after that, we have an interview with the Tar Sands Blockade people. So stick around, it's going to be really good, and happy 4th of July! Hey, and welcome to the show. This is episode 18 now. And you know what's cool is, first of all, let's start out with the really fun stuff. Um, It's July 4th, as you all know. And you're going to be listening to this probably either the night of the 4th or the 5th or sometime after that. So this was obviously taped on July 4th. And the reason why we wanted to kind of hold off and do kind of a new show here is because July 4th is not only the country's birthday, but it's also EcoJive's birthday. And a little bit of history here. EcoJive kind of came about and it's been something that was thought about for years. And then it actually started to kind of form based off of some time period a time period that i did on um an lgbtqa studies program and i went as an ally shooting a documentary comparing eau claire wisconsin to san francisco and it was san francisco during pride which is amazing and that was actually just over a year ago today and that time period actually it how how would you put it i mean it kind of gave me the energy or it gave me the drive or you know kind of in a way it freed me to the idea that something like eco drive could be created and that that could actually happen so actually even though it's kind of a weird tie-in you know i thank the um the pride festival for actually helping to create eco drive in a way and what had happened was i actually got back at the start of July and then talked it over with a few people about EcoJive, stuff like that. And so officially we called July 4th our birthday because that was the day that was decided that, you know what, we're going to go ahead and make EcoJive and do something from there. So it's happy birthday to us along with the country. So two reasons to celebrate today. Now, the big thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about was something that as I've been doing activism, and I've been doing it long before EcoJive, I worked, as many of you know, with the Buffalo Field Campaign. Uh, before that, I actually ran a nature education website, stuff like that. But one theme that has bothered me the entire time is that oftentimes activists are seen as going against patriots. And quite honestly, I think it's completely the opposite. Now, I can see the reasoning for it because if you have a simple mind and sorry I had to toss it in but if you do look at it, you see someone that's complaining about the country or complaining about something in the country or stuff like that and that doesn't seem to fit the stereotypical patriot you know waving the flag America's amazing type of viewpoint but in all honesty the real patriots are the ones that care enough and when I say that if you think about what an activist is doing and what they're saying they aren't just saying hey this is bad we need to fix this 
they're saying i care enough about this country that i want to say be better you know i mean sure there's there's actually a few activists out there that just you know kind of hate everything with the country but they're incredibly rare i mean that's just someone that's going to just say that anyways and they're not really a true activist but if you look at true activists and people that whether it's environment or you know women's rights or lgbtq rights you know any kind of stuff like that if you look at what they're honestly saying they're honestly saying hey you know what this country is pretty good but it's not perfect and what they're doing is they're actually dedicating their lives to create that more perfect union you know so how is that not a patriot in fact I go as far as to say that activists are the true patriots, that they're the strong ones, that they're the ones that if you want to look at what patriotism really is, then you need to look at an activist because everyone else, and you have this concept of this like American superiority where, you know, oh, we're the greatest country in the world or we have the greatest healthcare system, even though we don't actually, we just have the one that costs the most. In fact, our healthcare is like 32nd. I believe 32nd 34th right in there or we say we're the smartest people in the world even though in math we're also ranked in the mid 30s as far as you know countries and comparisons so to me that's not patriotism that's just lying and how can you I mean it's lying for a good reason I guess because they want their country to be the best but if you want to look at a true patriot someone that really cares about the country true patriots are activists because they say you know what i see a problem here and i'm willing to voice my opinion on this problem and i'm willing to if we have to dedicate our lives to trying to fix a problem to make a better country how's that not a patriot how's that not the best patriot of all and grant i know some people because you know being a patriot kind of gets this weird title to it and I actually know some activists who probably aren't that happy that I'm calling them extreme patriots. But, you know, to me, they honestly are. And if you look at the Founding Fathers, we're along the same lines. I mean, we have, like, the Tea Party kind of wants to be Founding Father-like and other people who want to say, oh, this is what they're like and this is what they did. Well, they were activists. If you look at, honestly, the Founding Fathers were activists. They were fighting against you know taxation without representation they're fighting you know basic british rule and various laws that came from government and when they originally started fighting these laws they didn't jump just right to a revolution at first they started trying to air out their grievances they organized and they wrote letters and they tried to get some action and now i'm not advocating eventual revolution here um but that's what happened at that time and that's what had to come to and they had things like the boss massacre going on and you know temperatures on both sides were incredibly high um i say temperatures because people were really really hot-headed about stuff (laughs) but you see what i'm saying is that they fought back for a system and they originally didn't want to be a separate country they just wanted to fix the problems that they had now during that time in revolutionary times obviously it had to go further and it went towards a revolution but the point is is that the people that were involved they were activists they protested they got out in the streets and they marched 
and they made speeches and they did all this kind of stuff to try to fix a system that they didn't consider completely wrong but issues that were wrong so how's that any different than an activist today i mean if you think about it how is when we have someone from say occupy and they go out and they occupy a park and they go hey these are the issues that we have to deal with we need better health care we need you know student debt fixed we need a fair wage in america or stuff like that or environmental groups that say hey you know what we're not supposed to have mercury and everything we need regulation on this we need to have you know a clean environment we need to push for clean energy we need to not have canadian pipelines you know things like that these are activists and these are patriots so today you know as far as i'm concerned july 4th is the holiday that's my major holiday that's the holiday i love and that's because quite honestly i've been an activist for years but because of that i've also been a patriot for years and i fully understand that and i'm willing to say that yes our country is not the greatest country but i'm also trying to and willing to try to make it better so that's my thoughts on patriotism and hopefully some people kind of think about that because quite honestly yeah activists are the biggest patriots out there okay so what do we have coming up for you on this week's show well we are going to have this awesome interview uh we interviewed the people of tar sands blockade and what they're doing is it's actually an organization that's um formed up to fight the southern section of the keystone xl pipeline now this is the part that actually obama even said yes you can build this section of it and you'll get to hear about that and then we're also going to have a new section that we call our shout out and what this is is we want to try to bring you more information and let you know about things that are going on and so we interviewed um person matt actually from ramps and he's going to tell you about an event that they're going to do this summer and so we're going to have that and then a little bit more about what's been going on here uh we actually or i personally joined up with a group that's working against the citizens united and that's important even though it's not environmental i've been talking with a few people and we've kind of decided that you know environment is obviously our focus but there is some things that you know can be done in solidarity i mean for example uh, we oftentimes interview and do updates with the people from occupy walk and they're amazing people we love being able to talk with them and you know we don't live in a bubble and so with that in mind it was you know seen as kind of a good idea to take on some other things and partner up with some stuff that's not even completely environmental because a lot of times we share in these things and so two of the things that EcoJive is going to be doing a little bit more of and getting more involved with is fighting citizens united because that basically gives corporations endless amounts of money to put on the people that they want buy and then that affects the environment even so this isn't you know this is kind of like an interlocking web it might not sound like it connects right away but it does connect overall and the other thing that we're going to be advocating for is healthcare. and you know we fully support the idea of how the um, court system just ruled 
but we also feel that we need to go further and that does need to in america go to a single payer system and so those are two of the things that we're going to fight in solidarity with the you know work that's already going on and don't worry our focus is still going to be environmental because you need to have some kind of strong focus on environmental action here there's just too much going on that we can't just ignore that but it's not a bad idea to also look at some of the things that would concern you know not only us but a lot of you guys too so we're gonna do all that and more and we're gonna take a short break here and i gotta be honest i'm actually gonna go see the fireworks hey i told you july 4th is like my holiday i love this holiday so we're gonna see the fireworks gonna be all jazzed up when i get back and then we'll talk a little bit more about this and we'll bring you our interviews and hopefully we won't have to cut too much uh our interview with the um, tar sands blockade and with ramps actually both went a little bit long and we've decided to include that in there and just go along because quite honestly it's worth it it's great info so we're gonna go ahead and take a little break here and probably give you an update right after the fireworks too happy fourth of july people hi my name is marcia colvin and i work in epa's seattle office here's an environmental tip that you can use During hot weather, don't top off your gas tank. Refuel your car or truck in the early morning or in the evening when it's cooler. A small fuel spill may not seem like much, but every spill evaporates and adds to air pollution. And fuel pumps with vapor recovery systems can feed a spill back into their tanks after you've paid for it. So in hot weather, don't top off. For more tips and information, go to epa.gov earth day help protect the environment earth day and every day it's 11:33 p.m and i'll tell you what i'm feeling a little patriotic let's talk about something kind of interesting that i thought of today and this is for all the people that complain about socialism and that running amok and everything else or for the people that have to deal with those people so let me describe to you a program Let's say there's a program out there and it relies off taxes that, let's say, the city gets in. Because in this case, I want to talk about the city. And so what happens is people that have money pay in and that goes into a pool, which the city then buys a product or service that goes for everyone. Socialism, right? I mean, isn't that exactly what, when they talk about healthcare? And Medicare for all, isn't that what the complaint is? That those that pay in, pay in, but then it's socialism because everyone gets it? Sure, but I'm talking about the fireworks. Think about it. If you watched fireworks, well, if you took a road even to watch the fireworks, but aren't they calling our fireworks a socialist program? Because those that pay in, and in like the city's case, those that own property or rent pays in, and that money goes into a pool that then buys a service and offers it for free for everyone that shows up. That's a 4th of July fireworks. Are they calling my fireworks socialism? Hmm. Well, anyways, let's get on to our new segment, and this is our shout-out, and what the shout-out segment's going to be, and I'm really excited about it because... We're going to have a short piece, just 
this one's a little long, but usually about five minutes for an organization or an event to explain something that they have that's going on and give them a little bit of a shout out so they can say what they're doing, when they're doing it, how they're going to do it, all that kind of stuff. Just a quick little piece just to get you, our listeners, a little bit more information. So our first one is with the Rams campaign, and they deal with mountaintop removal and fighting that. Uh, they're down in West Virginia, and we talk with Matt, who's really awesome. So let's go ahead and get to that. Hey, and we're here with Ramps for the shout-out. Um, Matt's going to explain a little bit more about what Ramps is and the event that they're doing. So go ahead, Matt. This July, uh, Ramps is calling for a mass mobilization to oppose mountaintop removal coal mining. Mountaintop removal is an extreme form of strip mining uh, where an entire top of a mountain is removed and resulting rubble is often dumped into the adjacent valley. Here in central Appalachia, over the last several decades, we've lost a land area the size of Delaware to this devastating practice. And this summer we are taking the next step in escalating citizen resistance to this practice by calling for as many people to walk on to an active surface mine in southern West Virginia and stay there as long as possible and do what the regulators and the politicians and the courts have been unwilling to do and with our bodies stop mountaintop removal. Ramps or Radical Action for Mountain People's Survival is a direct action campaign based here in southern West Virginia that believes that our greatest contribution to the fight to end surface mining in Appalachia is by organizing and supporting people taking direct action to intervene in the practice. Ramps' first action came last summer when two folks climbed into trees on the Beechery surface mine in Raleigh County and shut down blasting in a large area of the site. One of our sitters who was interviewed on your show um, was in the tree for a month making the longest tree sit east of the Mississippi. We really feel that we're in a critical moment in this struggle. We're carrying on a long tradition of action in the coal fields resisting the oppression of the coal industry that goes back to the very beginning. But right now, the coal industry in Appalachia is vulnerable, like it has not been in many years. And we're seeing that we're really beginning to make an impact, and the coal industry is struggling right now. So we feel that this is the most important time for people to step up and take more aggressive action and put pressure on the politicians and on the industry uh, while they're vulnerable before they regain strength to hopefully get this practice stopped for good. There is a place for anyone, uh, no matter what their abilities are, no matter what their ability to risk arrest is, uh, to come and participate, support what's happening. Um, And there'll be a lot of different options for what um, people can do and how they can support us uh, but you know, we really urge as many people to come down to southern West Virginia we are having a small camp 
to prepare people for the action starting on July 25th and running for a few days before we will take we'll take this action. We are going to be having our camp on a beautiful uh, sheep farm, and there will be food provided for all attendees. Uh, folks will need to bring a tent uh, to stay in, and if folks are unable to camp, there there's a possibility of either staying in local motels or, or uh, perhaps finding some hosting, but most of the facilities will be outdoors, um, and I will try to provide for as, as much needs as people can, but bring the equipment that you would take on a, a camping or hiking trip, and you should be just fine. Okay. And then last question I had for you, um, this is July 25th. I know I caught a message somewhere, it might have been on Facebook or something. Is there, or is there a, I guess, a ride share set up or anything like that at this point? Yeah. If you go to our website, which is org, there is... Um, a tab to go to the mountain mobilization where there's a ride share board. There's also uh, some additional information about the event and uh, a place for you to register. It's really important that anybody that's planning on coming go ahead and fill out our registration. It gives us critical information that allows us to plan for the event to be as safe and effective for everyone possible. So go ahead on there. There's also a place you can donate to mobilization, uh, whether you can come or not. You know, your financial support can be just as important. Uh, obviously, feeding and housing all of these people is, is, is uh, you know, cost some money, and yeah. any support that we can get in that area is great. But yeah, go to rantscampaign.org, register for the event, make a donation, check out the ride share board and other materials. I think the last thing that I'd like to add is that there's a lot of actions going on across the country resisting extraction this summer. And, um, you know, we really see this struggle against fracking, against the tar sands, against mountaintop removal and surface mining uh, as really part of the same fight. So if you, uh, if you can't come down to West Virginia on the 25th, um, Please check out other things that are going on this uh, summer. The Tartans blockade is going to be in Texas. The, uh, Stop the Frack Attack rally in D.C. The coal export camps in Montana in August. There is really a national uprising against extraction happening this summer. It's a very exciting thing, and I really encourage people to, what, wherever they can plug in, wherever they feel moved to plug in, to go ahead and take action. I think this is a, a really historic summer. And I'm going to have you hang on the line, but thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. And that was the first installment of our new segment, just called Shout Out. So we're going to play around with it. Um, some I might actually read off, some we might have them do. We'll kind of see as we go. And I wanted to talk a little bit before we get into our next interview here. I actually had something really cool happen, and I want to reward it because it's the first time in years. 
uh, when we're come back from the fireworks, there's a whole bunch of us, and this one guy decided to pull through a parking area into the crosswalk area, or into the sidewalk area, and then out on the little thing so he could shove his way into traffic. The problem was he almost hit the front of my bike and another person because we were both walking on the sidewalk. And then we get up to the main intersection where the the cops actually are directing traffic because it's we have a small area, but there's a few thousand people, roughly speaking, that go see the fireworks. And many of them come out the same exit to the same intersection. So there's actually like four or five police officers there. And this guy decides to just kind of try and go. And the police officer stops and just yells at him. And then he looks over at me and he ends up going, okay, hang on a second. And he's like super cool to me. And he's obviously stressed out because it's a bad situation there. And then so I wait a second and he looks over at me and he's like, okay, go across. And he waves me across. And this jerk in the car decides to try to sneak out again. And seriously, almost hit my bike twice. Because I'm still walking my bike. I'm actually going when the cop tells me to go. And for the first time in this area in years, I see a police officer finally lay into a motor vehicle driver because they're a danger on the road. And he seriously, like, he let him have it. He's, you know, he stops right there. He's like, go ahead. And it's funny because he's super nice and, you know, decent to me. And then he looks at the driver and he just starts yelling, that's the last time. And, you know, and I pretty much just got out of there. But, yeah, I just wanted to give that shout out because that's something that we need to see more. Because, unfortunately, my town, the police department, I feel needs some work as far as this goes. And that's something that we actually set up to have a meeting hopefully soon with the police department here because we actually since i last talked to you called to set up a meeting and later that day we had a motor vehicle actually drive on the bike lane and hit a guy and killed him and in this case it may have been an accident i don't know if there's alcohol involved or any of the details like that but you know this is what happened and quite honestly i've seen multiple times where people decide that the bike path is just kind of this easy route and they'll just drive on it for a little bit and you know not so much this year but last year i saw probably three or four of them year before that i saw quite a few and so they kind of just drive on the bike path real quick and then get back off or stuff like that but that happens around here and a guy died from it the other day so We'll keep you updated, but that's one of the things that we wanted to do here and then set up a standard that can use, be used in other communities to provide more safety. Now, up next, normally we do have a little bit of a break that we'll take here, but because we do have so much stuff that we're trying to get in at once here, we're going to go ahead and go into our interview. And this is with the Tar Sands Blockade people, and I'll let them explain that. So hope you get a chance to check out the Rams campaign and hopefully you get a chance to go down there or support them in some other way but let's go ahead and move on to the tar sands blockade hey now we're here with ron seifert uh he's with tar sands blockade uh first of all ron welcome to the show hey thanks for having me i now i wanted to start here and a lot of our listeners have you know know stuff about the keystone xl pipeline but just to make sure we're all on the same page can you give us a rundown of the pipeline itself, and then we'll go into the southern southern segment here in a minute? Absolutely. So the Keystone XL Pipeline Project is a roughly 1,700-mile project that will run 
tar sands crewed from Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf Coast of Texas. Now it's actually a whole pipeline system. So the Keystone XL is actually an expansion, a four-phase expansion project on a Keystone pipeline that already does exist. So currently there is a pipeline that's running tar sands from Alberta to Cushing, Oklahoma. So the Keystone XL was a project to add more capacity, an additional line from Canada to Oklahoma, and then extend uh, that line down to the Gulf. So last January, when President Obama denied the permit to go through with the Keystone XL project in full, TransCanada, the company uh, making this pipeline, decided to segment, segment the project. So it's questionable whether or not that step in itself is legal. We can maybe talk more about that later. But what's happening is they're now just building the Gulf Coast segment of the pipeline while they are reapplying for the additional increased uh, capacity pipe from Alberta to Cushing. So if this section, the Gulf Coast section, is built, ultimately what TransCanada will have is their initial pipeline, what we call Keystone 1 that already goes from Canada to Oklahoma, and then they're going to tie this new Gulf Coast segment into that one. So they'll still ostensibly get, be getting tar sands from Canada to the Gulf Coast refineries. It just won't be as much. The uh, Keystone 1 pipeline already diverts some of its capacity to other refineries, and additionally it's just a smaller pipe, so it doesn't won't have the capacity that the full Keystone XL would have. But either way... Uh, this Gulf Coast segment was phase three in a four-phase project that they had planned from the outset. So it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors to say that uh, they're not getting what they want or the Keystone XL project is has been defeated. Uh, it's more or less on schedule. The last phase, the completed uh, pipeline from, or I should say the larger pipeline from Alberta to Oklahoma has yet to be approved. So there's still a big fight looming in the future there. But uh, this Gulf Coast segment is dangerously close to approval. It only awaits uh, one uh, important permit before construction can formally begin, which TransCanada has announced should be this August. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the permit process here, but um, before we get into that, so if they're allowed to end up building this seg section of the pipeline, then it sounds like effectively then they have their pipeline, they just aren't able to pipe as much as they would as if they put in a new pipeline for the whole system. Is that correct? That is correct. So for over a year now, uh, the Keystone 1 pipeline uh, has been pumping oil, tar sands oil, into Cushing. The majority of that is being stored in tanks there. Um, Cushing, Oklahoma is a big hub for the hydrocarbon industry in the United States. It's like Grand Central State, say. There's just a, a, a large amount of storage capacity, uh, uh, millions upon millions upon millions of, of gallons of oil are just stored there and then spread into the pipeline network that we have. So ultimately, uh, 
there's plenty of capacity waiting to be sent to Gulf Coast refineries here that only needs a vehicle, which is the Gulf Coast segment. Hey, and how long would this Gulf Coast segment be if it is allowed to, like, I mean, do you know roughly how many miles or stuff like that? Yeah, it's a little less than 500 miles, around 485 um, there is a, a little fork at the end of this segment, so it goes from Cushing down to uh, just outside of Houston, and then one fork will carry uh, some of its capacity east to the coast itself to a area called Port Arthur, and then the rest will head down into the, the Houston refining market. Okay, and then I wanted to ask you for, and this actually recently came up, um, you talked a little bit about the permits there, but there's this weird thing with the Army Corps of Engineers that it looked like they were trying to get around permitting, or can you, do you know a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So uh, just the short of it is the Army, the, it's their permits for water crossings is ultimately what they're waiting for, and there are three different districts uh, that this segment of the pipeline will need to receive permits for, and as of two days ago, it's received two of its three permits from the Army Corps. So the Corps uh, is giving them these blanket water crossing permits. So instead of analyzing and examining individual water crossings, marshes, rivers, you name it, they just pretty much give are giving TransCanada a stamp saying whatever you have to cross is fine with us. So that's interesting because when TransCanada was initially applying for their permit for the entire Keystone XL project, which needs federal appro- approval because it crosses our national border with Canada, uh, which is why the president was involved in that decision-making process, as was the State Department. So uh, the State Department, of course, did uh, an environmental impact statement. And in the draft impact statement, when the EPA reviewed that statement that uh, they had put together, they gave uh, the, the project a rating of inadequate. It's the, the lowest rate ranking possible. Uh, and the, uh, the EPA said in its comments on that draft in, environmental impact statement that there was insufficient information to approve of this process. So skip ahead now. This was, you know, that was all going on in 2010, 2011. So skip ahead now to this year. Uh, In March, President Obama announced his uh, formal support for this Gulf Coast segment and promised that he would expedite the permitting process. So the EPA had the uh, had initially said that these types of rubber stamp permits for water crossings were inappropriate. Uh, it, it's the Section 404 in the Clean Water Act, uh, and they should have individualized the water crossings and had uh, analysis, public hearings on each individual process. So that was the EPA's initial stance on how this should be permitted. Of course, now that the Obama administration is in support of this pipeline, the EPA has remained silent and has failed to uh, facilitate the necessary individualized permit process uh, that it itself recommended. So uh, 
there basically is the regulators aren't regulating the Army Corps of Engineers in how they're granting these permits. So now there's just one Corps office that has uh, its permit left to grant, and then TransCanada will be permitted to begin. Yeah, that's what I'm looking here at the um, Tulsa World. It's a um, news site for Tulsa, and they're talking about how the um, the Tulsa office, which just approved their portion of it, uh, they didn't even have a public hearing on it, so there wasn't even a chance for local people to you know, have any voice at all in this. Um, so this way then they're able to get around environmental regulations. Like I know a lot of times when you build or do a permit, stuff like that, you need to have the environmental impact study done. But this has been 45 days. So for this specifically for the Tulsa section. Um, so the Army Corps of Engineers, I take it, doesn't need an environmental impact study? Is that why they're going this route then? or? Well, that's right. So how that works is that 45-day window is open for, you could say, objection. So if uh, nothing comes up, if there's no objection to the permit uh, by some regulatory, regulatory or official body, then the permit is just automatically granted. So there hasn't been the, the, the people that need to be protecting landowners and protecting Texans, protecting our, our resources, protecting our aquifers. These, uh, are, you know, our representatives basically have failed to step up and do anything. So they are sitting back and allowing that 45-day window to uh, close, and then the permit just, these kind of blanket crossing permits then go through. All right. And now that we have kind of a rundown of where the Tar Sands Pipeline is at, um, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, uh, Tar Sands Blockade, like how it started, who the members are, stuff like that? Sure. So I guess you could say that really TransCanada started this whole mess uh, more than four years ago when they started approaching landowners here in the southeast uh, and more or less just lying to them and telling them that they had eminent domain power and they had the right to condemn property because they had a fully permitted pipeline that was going to go through and there's nothing landowners could do to stop them. So they used that tactic to, to bully and convince landowners to sign easements for this pipeline without really being straightforward, uh, if not overtly lying to them. So now we have a situation where we have a lot of disenfranchised landowners who signed agreements for this right-of-way that they wouldn't have wanted to sign had they had all the information in front of them of what tar sands really is and, and the fact that TransCanada didn't even have the permits it needed to, to complete this pipeline. Um, and additionally, now that more and more information is known about tar sands and the fact that what's going to be in the pipe is is really dangerous. It's not traditional crude oil. It's actually a, a synthetic vitamin slurry with all kinds of carcinogens and some of the most toxic poisons that we know of. Um, so ultimately, landowners are in this place where they don't really have an opportunity to use the institution to stop the pipeline. Uh, 
as it's kind of cliche to say, but the Texas and Oklahoma are certainly oil and gas country, and most all the politicians kowtow to the hydrocarbon market and its major players. So instead of representing the people and the landowners, the, uh, the politicians and these regulators are more or less on the side of ex- expansion of the fossil fuel market. So given no recourse, we have a lot of local folks down here that want to do whatever they can to protect themselves from this disastrous pipeline. It is a legitimate public health and safety threat. So you couple that with uh, the folks on a national level who understand the, the implications, the ramifications of expanding tar sands exploitation of what it means for our climate, what it means uh, for this world going forward. All these people are also on board to do whatever they can to stop this pipeline as it is, as it has been said to be the fuse to the largest carbon bomb on planet Earth. So that's kind of the coalition, excuse me, coalition we're working with. Uh, folks on the ground here that have been fighting against TransCanada's easements and right-of-way for years now, as well as the environmental community that wants to stand in solidarity with landowners to do whatever they can to stop this pipe from getting in the ground. Now, I wanted to ask, too, because, yeah, Texas is known for oil, but isn't it also known for, like, land ownership and, like, you know, individual rights as far as land ownership goes and stuff like that? I mean... Very much so. It's uh, sometimes a case of of unusual bedfellows, you could say, that you have uh, folks that are very much aligned with, with the right and with the Tea Party and think very highly of the Constitution lining up to fight this pipeline with uh, self-identifying environmentalists for different reasons, but they're all on the same page because there's just so many reasons that stand against this pipeline. It really is... Uh, an affront on so many different levels. But to your point about eminent domain and property condemnation, uh, there are actually several places in the Texas Constitution, as well as in our you know, United States Constitution, that say explicitly that your property can only be taken for a public use or for a public purpose. In fact, the Texas law explicitly prohibits combination authorities from taking property to enhance tax revenues or to foster economic development. That's written right into the Texas Landowners Bill of Rights. It's posted on the Texas Attorney General's website. Uh, And interestingly enough, there was a Texas Supreme Court case last year. uh, It was called Rice Land Partners versus Denbury Green Pipeline. And it basically, uh, the, the ruling said that the permitting process for eminent domain in Texas is insufficient. As it works for TransCanada and for the uh, every pipeline company in Texas has passed, it's actually the Railroad Commission down here that has the authority to, to grant eminent domain entitlements. And to get that entitlement from the Railroad Commission, all a pipeline company has to do is fill out a one-page application and check a box that says, I am a common carrier. So you just self-label yourself uh, a common carrier pipeline, and then there's no investigation, no 
um, authentication of that claim by the railroad commission or any other regulatory body. They just say approved, and then you all of a sudden have the power to take private property. So the Supreme Court case last year came out and said that that was unacceptable and uh, that the, the private property could not be imperiled with such nonchalance. But nonetheless, that's what TransCanada has done, and even after that Supreme Court hearing, they've not been forced to prove that they actually are a public-use pipeline. They've never been uh, forced to authenticate or verify any of the claims they've made by officials. So it, it's all pretty black and white here. The law says you cannot take private property unless it's for a public good, and nobody is verifying that this is, in fact, for a public good or for a public use. In fact, there's a lot of reasons to believe it's just a private uh, project, private profitable project. Last year in December, uh, in the Congressional Energy and Commerce Subcommittee hearing on uh, what was called the American Energy Initiative, TransCanada's president, Alex Porbet, was questioned by Representative Edward Markey uh, from Massachusetts. And in that exchange, uh, Markey asked if Mr. Porbet would be willing to put a prohibition on the export into the contracts with Gulf Coast refineries to ensure that export doesn't occur, to ensure that this is actually a public use project, that it was going to benefit America, that what flows through that pipe will be utilized by Americans here. So he was asking uh, Alex Porvey to commit to agree to put on paper what he said was going to happen in terms of keeping the oil here. And Porvey's response was that he couldn't do that um, because he had already agreed to shipping arrangements. And so these contracts with uh, big energy corporations, like Valero for one, are, have already been made. And to use Valero as an example, which is contracted to receive a large percentage of TransCanada's or excuse me, of Keystone's capacity, uh, the CEO of Valero recently said uh, in a presentation with investors just this March that there are significant changes uh, in the uh, export market and that Valero's plan is to increase international sales of petroleum products to expand into new marketplaces. And so it, it's really just a sham, in my view, that this is a public use proper or a project. It's just to, to, we're being used as mules to funnel uh, crude oil uh, from Canada to the global market in the Gulf Coast. And that, our property rights are supposed to be protected precisely from that type of activity. So it's, it really leaves us no recourse. That's why this idea of direct action and physically blockading and putting our bodies on the line to stop this pipeline and hopefully raise awareness of some of these issues is, is what we have left. And I want to be, be able to get to that, too, here in just a second, but I wanted to point out specifically, because this was you know, one of the selling points of the um, overall pipeline was that it's supposed to go to, you know, our market here in the U.S. that it was going to lower our gas prices and people that kind of knew what was going on knew that this actually goes on a world market. So are you saying with the info that you're just telling us that they've even confirmed that um, the gas itself won't go directly to U.S. markets, that it would go to you know international markets then? 
Yeah, that is the idea. Uh, essentially, France Canada doesn't want to force contracts on its on its refineries uh, to do one thing or another because that jeopardizes its marketability. But the, that's just the way that oil works. Uh, I mean, it's it's a global commodity. Yeah, of course, some of it will be used here in the United States, and it will be a lot of what the advocates for this pipeline say is that 100% of it will be refined in the United States, or at least we're getting that economic benefit. But that's a little misleading as well. Where these refineries operate in the Gulf Coast are in what are called foreign trading zones. So they operate out, they don't pay state or local taxes or federal taxes on, on their business and on their importing and exporting. They don't have to pay any taxes. So additionally, um, aside from Valero, which is the largest exporter of refined petroleum products in the United States, uh, the oil is also going to Motiva, which is a joint venture between Saudi Arabia's Aramco and uh, Royal Dutch Shell as well as Total, which is a French-owned supermajor oil company. So it, with all these factors, it's really unclear what type of benefit there's going to be to the American market or the American taxpayer. It really is kind of a, 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 a sham. It's uh, amazing when you, when you dig in and, and see which players are involved, uh, how little of this money is going to actually trickle down to have a positive impact on... Americans one way or another. Well, and the thing that, I don't know, just amazes me that they try to argue is that, you know, they often say that, you know, we'll put more oil on the market and that'll bring down the prices, but why would any oil company purposely oversupply its market to drive down the price and effectively lower their um, profits? I've never quite understood that. So, um, but... I wanted to get into a little bit about what direct action is and, you know, because that's one of the things that you guys do there. So can you tell us a little bit about direct action and what you've done and stuff like that? Certainly. So what we hope to be doing here is in spirit with some of the work that was done last year uh, to protest this, this pipeline project. Uh, as some of your listeners might know, last year there were... Uh, arrest at the White House, uh, an act, a sit-in action there that was two weeks long of waves uh, of folks protesting the pipeline of being arrested right in front of the, uh, the White House gates itself. Following that, by about two months, there was a massive rally in D.C. around the White House. Over 10,000 participants came and literally circled the White House, joining hands all the way around. Uh, to send a message to Obama that they did not approve of this pipeline, that they were going to hold him accountable for his in environmental claims that he made campaigning. So that type of uh, people power is what we're trying to embody with this project as well. Um, the tactics and the strategy are a little different now because the, the situation is different. But direct action as uh, a vehicle of political protest is, is a powerful di display. Uh, if you're willing to put your body on the line, if you're willing to, to line up and say that you are, that what is going on is a 
violating a defining commitment in your life and you are simply not going to take it, that you've exhausted every other resource available to you, that the institutions that are supposed to serve you are simply not working. This is what you have left, and it's a powerful message to say that even though you've tried to play by the rules and the rules are just creating ill will in the world, then you can still stand up to that. And then I want to ask you, so is that, if people are out there and they want to get involved, is that kind of the only way to get involved at this point, or what, you know, what are people's options, I guess? Well, this is certainly not the only way to get involved. If folks do want to get involved on the uh, ground level, there is a a way through our website, tarsandsblockade.org. There are are sign-up sheets and and different levels of participation that people can uh, elect or sign up for. But certainly, as you may know, the TransCanada has reapplied for its presidential permit for the northern segment of the Keystone XL pipeline. So that whole process that went through uh, with an environmental impact statement and a review, that's all going to have to happen again. So this isn't a decision that's going to be made anytime in the next few months. But nonetheless, there are representatives and there are officials that need to have their feet held to the fire. We need to... Uh, have transparency in this. The first environmental impact statement was corrupted. There was a lot of collusion between industry and State Department officials, so we need to be able to have folks investigating that, watching for that, shining a light on it if they have that ability. So there's certainly a lot of institutional pressure that can be applied, and it it doesn't hurt to get your local representatives to to be on record. In fact, uh, you know, there's a tar sands pipeline that right now goes to Superior, Wisconsin. It's called the Alberta Clipper. It only has about half the capacity of what this Keystone XL will have. It transports about 450,000 barrels a day. But there are some legitimate safety concerns with that pipeline. Um, Right now, Congress has contracted the Pipeline Hazardous Material Safety Administration, what we call FIMSA for short, to study tar sands pipelines because they are concerned that because of the nature of, of tar sands, it's like high-pressure liquid sandpaper, that there uh, is an increased um, corrosive element than compared to traditional crude. So the National Academy of Sciences is conducting a study on the safety of tar sands pipelines as we speak, which should be done sometime next year. So the fact that they, the, our regulatory bodies don't even know this stuff is going on, yet we're pumping it all over the place and proposing the largest tar sands pipeline in history to be built without even understanding the science behind it or the safety behind it is alarming. And people can certainly make, uh, if people have grievances with these facts, they can make them known. That It should be front page news that that's what we're doing. We're jeopardizing our water resources, our land resources, our health. Uh, for something that's just a big question mark. Yeah, and people, honestly, I think when people look at the issue, too, they should question, you know, why is TransCanada trying to put the pipeline through the U.S. and not through Canada itself? Because the background that a lot of people don't realize with this is that they tried to go through Canada originally, and 
um, the First Nations people and stuff like that actually blocked the pipeline process going through Canada. So we're kind of getting this, like, leftover, you know, we've got to do it this way. And when they claim it's so safe, well, if it's so safe and so easy to pipe and stuff like that, then why aren't they doing it through their own country? As that's kind of... That's, you know. that's true. It, it certainly should uh, raise an eyebrow to, to, to question these things. But it's also worth mentioning that... Uh, this is just the beginning of the battle to confront tar sands exploitation. Uh, the reserves of tar sands up there in northern Canada are one of the largest, if not the largest, untapped resource of hydrocarbons left on planet Earth. It's the last best thing for the super major oil companies to get into, and they are literally all in on, on this exploitation. There's roughly 1.75 billion extractable barrels available up there in Alberta, um, which which is a tremendous volume. It's second to only Saudi Arabia's reserves. So more than $200 billion with a B have, has already been invested in infrastructure projects up there in Canada. It's currently right now the world, the entire world's largest energy project, largest infrastructure project, largest capital investment project. So this is a huge deal for all these energy companies that we know of, Exxon and Conoco and Shell and, and so on down the list. This is one of their last uh, cash cows. And the only way that you can get something from central Canada to market is by a very long pipeline. So these types of projects are going to continue to come as more and more companies can build and increase capacity there and try to develop every last drop of it. I mean, this reserve in, in, in size and in square miles is between 53 and 54,000 square miles. That's about the exact same size as the state of Illinois, or, you know, uh, a little bit smaller than Wisconsin. But you can imagine an area the size of Illinois uh, just being clear-cut, being totally destroyed, the top uh, 70 feet of the earth being stripped away. It, they just turn it into a moonscape. Everything is destroyed. It's complete ecocide. There's nothing left. That's what they hope to do for that landmass up there. That's the plan in place right now. And part of the illusion, and this goes into, again, the arguments are made for the pipeline itself, is that you always hear that's got lower gas prices, which we kind of talked about that. But the guarantee that it won't is because all this you know everything that's going on up there takes a lot of money to do and the only reason why they're trying to do it now is because gas prices are so high and so if gas prices drop then it won't be cost effective to even do all this that's exactly right that's an excellent point in fact because of the nature of tar sands the hydrocarbon in tar sands is what we call bitumen or bitumen um it requires upgrading before it can even be piped and refined. So there's like a pre-refining process in a sense, which in, it contributes heavily to the carbon footprint and the expense of the product. You know, it's, no, it's not that this reserve has just been discovered here in the past few years. Uh, it's been on the radar uh, since colonial times that this tar substance has been known to exist. It's only that they couldn't make it pay in the past because of the huge cost of what they call upgrading it 
before they can pipe it. In its natural state, tar sands is kind of like peanut butter, or peanut butter that's been in the refrigerator. It's very sticky, it's thick, you couldn't put it in a pipeline. So essentially, they have to melt it and dilute it. So they have to, to melt it, they, they boil water and create steam, and then they add this, you know, toxic slurry of chemicals and, and dilute it down, and, and the pipelines through which it runs are heated and highly pressurized. So you have this corrosive, melted tar sand mixed with chemicals being blasted through high-pressure heated pipes. So all that process is so expensive that it's only recently that oil prices, having risen above $100 a barrel, have made this a profitable venture. So you're right that the only way this continues to turn a hearty profit for these big companies is if oil prices stay high and continue to rise. And as global uh, reserves continue to decrease, that's what all their analysts are saying, that we can we can make this a cash cow because oil is just going to get more and more expensive and our manufacturing costs, so to speak, are going to uh, be less and less no, uh, or more negligible compared to the, the profits. Okay. And I also, before we went too far into this um, I want to let our listeners know that they can follow the Tarsens blockade at um, Tarsens blockade on Twitter which is actually um, you can search that or um, KXL blockade uh, on Facebook there's also a Facebook page where it's just facebook.com slash Tarsens blockade and then as you mentioned before you can also go to tarsensblockade.org and so you can find more information from there. Now, I wanted to ask you here, um, my kind of final question with everything is I always want to ask if there's anything that I missed or that you wanted to include here that we didn't talk about so far? Well, certainly this issue is is a very important one for a whole host of reasons. Um, I, I think we put a lot of important information out there, but... Essentially, one of the things I like to, to point out to folks is that in the story of the Keystone XL pipeline so far, most of the media attention it's received is, is framed this as an issue of economy versus environment. So you have stories that go out and say, this is what environmentalists say, these are their concerns, this is what economists say, these are their concerns. They both have weight, why don't you, the reader, decide? And I think that's really unfair. Uh, first of all, it, it's a false choice because, of course, on a dead planet there is no economy. And almost certainly the science is in on that. If we develop and exploit all the tar sands, there will be no future for this planet. So it, it's really a, a false dichotomy to begin with. But, but secondly, as important as the environmental concerns are, there's a number of other legitimate reasons to oppose this pipeline. Like I mentioned, this is a violation of constitutional land rights. This is a process of giant multinational corporations just steamrolling small local landowners and exploiting their powerlessness for profit. Uh, this is a, a story about health and public safety. We have some of the most toxic cancer-causing chemicals being pumped through people's lands, and we can't even get our government to have TransCanada disclose the exact recipe. We don't know what ingredients they're using. They refuse to tell, and the government is just 
okay with that. Additionally, we're allowing these pipelines are known to leak. Every pipeline leaks, period. Every single one that's ever built has leaked. Everyone that ever will be built will leak, at least some percentage. In the case of this Keystone XL, TransCanada's own documents in their own disclosures say it can leak up to 5% a day without triggering a leak detection system, which is the equivalent of 1.7 million gallons a day. They're just willing to let leak out. So you do the math, 1.7 million gallons a day over a 50-year lifespan of this project. You're talking about hundreds of billions, if not trillions of gallons that we're just allowing to leak into our groundwater, leak into our environments, all for private profit. And, and the list goes on. Uh, certainly our websites or, you know, there's a lot of great groups that have done work at this and uh, some internet searches can point you to a lot of wonderful resources. Um, but there, there's a lot of reasons to stand against this pipeline and there's a lot that the industry doesn't want talk about. They want to keep that focus on environment versus economy because they think that they have legitimate economic claims. I would dispute that, but they don't want to have these other conversations. So to shed light on these other aspects or for your listeners to go out and find out other reasons why this pipeline should be protested and blockaded is, is important. It's one of the ways that we can, we can win the hearts and minds of more and more folks, especially in this part of the country where quite frankly, this environment versus the economy argument is fairly one-sided. Yeah, and you know, I want to, because you brought up something really interesting that I didn't know about, because I didn't know about the um, them being okay with the 5% leakage. Um, you know, that to me is really scary, because when you're talking about this many miles of pipeline, you know, this isn't just even like, I mean, regular oil is bad enough. But when you're forcing tar sands through, if you have a leak, that's basically forcing sandpaper through the leak. And so it's going to get worse. You'd think it'd get worse a lot quicker. But with this many miles of it, how long would it take for, you know, if you have a leak that's two, three hundred miles down to the pipe, you know, how long does it take for them to notice even what becomes a greater amount? And that's assuming that they will do anything about it. I mean, we had... Like, I think back to um, the Yellowstone River up in Montana, which, you know, I think that was about a year ago now, where there's a leak there, and it just ran for a while. But that, you know, imagine doing, like, tar sands through it, and then these chemicals that come through it, and how long that could potentially leak. I mean, that, where you're talking about the 5% leakage, that honestly, you know, is really concerning. I mean, that should really bother people, I think. Well, I agree. And certainly when pressed about that issue, these pipeline companies will say they have all the sophisticated technology to detect leaks, and, and that is the case. They do have a lot of technology there to detect large leaks, so when, when noticeable pressure changes exist, they can lock down pipelines. But we're talking about very small pinhole leaks. So these very tiny pinhole leaks, they're only leaking, you know, a handful of gallons over the course of a day, but you expand that over a 1,700-mile project, it, it adds up pretty fast. So it's those types of things that could potentially be going on and on, and TransCanada and all of its uh, partners in, uh, in, in pipelines are going to just say, shrug their shoulders and say, that's part of business as usual. That's just the price we pay for, for 
pumping oil. And I think there, there's a real reason to question that. Well, yeah, and that's actually still assuming, though, that, you know, even if they notice something right away, that they aren't going to just go, well, the loss in oil doesn't, you know, look at from, like, a money side where it has to hit a certain dollar amount. Because, you know, we know, like, there was a case last year with, and I don't know if it was with this oil company or not, but one of the oil companies was adjusting. They have what's called a pig, and it's this thing they send through the pipes to detect if there's, like, starting to get break points or stuff like that, and they're actually lowering the sensitivity of it so that, you know, I was going through and it wasn't detecting the stuff that should be detecting purposely because they didn't want to go out and spend money fixing the pipeline. And so we're assuming in this case that they would even go out and do that. I mean, if they're okay with a 5% loss, then why wouldn't they be okay with, you know, a 7 or 8 or 10% loss as long as no one else notices, you know? I agree. And certainly there are fail-safes that could be implemented. There are impermeable barriers you could basically wrap the entire pipeline in in some sort of you know heavy thick rubber uh barrier so that any nothing could leak out you could use much much thicker steel than they use but all these things are expensive and their goal is to maximize profits so things like safety and health concerns uh become secondary yeah, and honestly, why would they go through that process if they don't need to? I mean, if they don't, and not need to as far as environmentally, but as far as, you know, the government or anyone forcing them to. I mean, it doesn't seem, especially with the Army Corps of Engineers, you know, they seem to have just kind of rubber-stamped two of the areas that were with the water passage anyways, correct? That's right, that's right. So it, we we do see this trend and it's uh, it's disheartening to say the least that uh, our, our, our regulators and our representatives are more interested in the fossil fuel industry uh, and economic vitality through the hydrocarbon market than they are interested in what their constituents have to say. So we have this kind of vicious cycle of a government sector that's interested in maximizing profits and growing the economy, and then an economic sector that's interested in exploiting people for profits. So it just feeds back on itself, and we are the victims. Small, powerless people are the victims, and that's why direct action is important. It allows uh, an opportunity for, for powerless people to speak up. Hey, and on that note, that's actually a good spot to end this, I think. Um, you know, we could go on talking about this for a while now because it's such a huge issue, but I do want to thank you for your time and remind people again that they can go to tarsandsblockade.org or look it up on Twitter and Facebook to get more involved. So, you know, thanks for being out there. Hey, Kim, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, yeah, this was a good time. All right, and I'm going to have you hold on the line for just a second. Okay. And just in case you missed it, that was the Tar Sands Blockade. Now, you can check them out on Twitter, Facebook, and on the web. So definitely, you know, check them out, see what they're doing, and see what you can do to help out. Even if you can't get down there, maybe... You know, if you can donate, if you can't donate, then donate some time or donate a little bit of energy. You know, help them spread the word. 
using Twitter, Facebook, your friends, neighbor, re- relatives, all that kind of stuff. Anything you can do like that would definitely help them out. Um, just from talking with them, it's really cool because we could talk for hours. I mean, there's so much going on and there's so much kind of interesting elements to this that really need to stop. And we have to draw the line somewhere and this is a great spot to do that. So check them out, check out the Roots campaign. And then I want to leave you with a final little bit here and we're going to do kind of another shout out. But this is again the kind of, I don't want to say kind of too often, (laughs) but it's a the solidarity movement aspect of environmental work. And early in the podcast, we talked about um, moving to amend the Constitution to take out Citizens United. And I personally actually joined a local group here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, They're affiliate affiliate group, sorry about that, but of an organization called Move to Amend. And Move to Amend, you can look up online. It says movetoamend.org. Um, if they're not your cup of tea, that's fine. But definitely check out another organization or an organization that's fighting Citizens United. Because what we're doing here in Eau Claire and many other cities and areas have done this is we actually fought and didn't have to fight hard. We actually got resolution on the ballot for November to stand against or let people say that they stand against Citizens United. And when the group and I ended up meeting with them and went personally to a city council meeting to get on the ballot, and then our city council voted unanimously to put this on the ballot. So this is how we're going to end up fighting Citizens United. And I know it's not really environmental, but in a way it is. All these things tie together. And I know that you guys know that too. I mean, when we sit back and when you know when elections come up oil companies make a ton of money and they make more than environmental groups and they can spend more putting into super PACs than environmental groups pull in in 10 years and that kind of money you know we can argue if it gets noticed or not but it's hard to say that gets ignored when you have multi-millionaires that say hey i'm going to contribute a hundred million dollars to a campaign it's hard to say that that kind of money doesn't get just ignored. You know, that the person gaining it just goes, oh, thanks. You know, yeah, that doesn't happen realistically. I mean, they're not going to put in that kind of money unless they get some kind of return on it. Citizens United helps make, or fighting Citizens United will help make that change. So I actually joined up with the group Move to Amend, became the treasurer, um, go do a little bit of their web stuff and things like that. Pretty excited about that. And it ties in because the Patriot aspect, too. When we had our meeting, it was so great to see other people in a room that had well-thought-out ideas and arguments. And, like I say, arguments loosely. Like, they weren't mad in arguing, but, you know, points that they are making and discussions that were happening that, quite honestly, was a little therapeutic. And let's let's be real. I mean, for some environmentalists, we're lucky. We're around other people or some activists. We're around other people that we can talk to and kind of relax and relate to, stuff like that. But there's a lot of environmentalists and activists out there who don't have that, that maybe live in a area that's very counter to their beliefs. And so organizations like this, and that's where EcoJive hopefully will be an online source. But it's nice to also meet people and 
person that at least shares some of the same values. They may not agree completely on how things are carried out, but they agree that there's an issue there. So something to think about with Move to Amend or another organization like it. Also, don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, you'll get occasional updates with news, info, things like that. On Twitter, you'll get many more updates, and you'll be able to keep up with news that's going on both in the U.S. and to some extent around the world, too. That's at Facebook.com slash EcoJive or Twitter.com slash EcoJive. So check those both out, sign up for them, and that's the best spot to keep up with what's going on with the podcast here and with what we're doing next with the website. Now, our last little thing with the podcast right now, it's a little sporadic. We're trying to get one out every two weeks or so, and eventually we'll be back up to every week if we aren't already. Uh, the next one that we're playing for, we're hopefully going to talk with Occupy Walk again. We didn't forget about you guys out there. We love you guys. Uh, we just put this together and knew it was running long already, so we just didn't have time to fit anything more in. But we'll definitely get you and get that update for the next show that we do. And stay up to date with us on Twitter and Facebook so that you'll know when shows come out. And then after we get our bill suggestion done, which will be this summer, either late july early august then we'll be back up to doing a show a week again uh we might even do some little filler stuff in between um check that out and we may we're even thinking about doing kind of a live version and so we thought it'd be kind of a cool way to help promote local businesses which again another thing it's that kind of synergy going on so you know if we go and can actually do say at a coffee shop or stuff like that and have a show there and even interact with some guests it makes a much more fun show and it makes something that's interesting for that business too so it allows us to support local businesses and you know i gotta admit i'm really excited about that i hope that we can pull it off i've never done a live show so i don't know how it'd work and we definitely would have to say hey you know we can't control everything everyone says so yeah we're gonna check that out but anyways until then go ahead crack open a cold one that can be a beer soda tea whatever you drink um water that's water's good in fact did you know that if you play the star spangled banner backwards it tells you to buy pepsi So that doesn't, but I do want to leave you with a different rendition that I want you to listen to because I didn't know this, but if you listen to the part where it'd be the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in the air, those two sections, then the instrument actually kind of plays out like this kind of chaotic thing to each part that sounds like rockets and then later sounds like bombs. So I want you to go ahead and listen to that and kind of think about the deeper meaning here for a song that we've all had to have heard. And if you haven't, I can't help you. Yeah.
Oh, <laughs> oh,